If you have your Bible handy, please open it to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39. In this first chapter of Luke, Mary has just received the good news from the angel Gabriel that she is going to bear the Son of God. And Gabriel tells her that nothing will be impossible with God, and he tells her that uh, her uh, cousin or relative Elizabeth is also with child. And so we pick it up in verse 39 of this first chapter of Luke. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of that which had been spoken to her by her Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of this bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this wonderful portion of Scripture this morning where Mary's spirit rejoices in you, Lord, and her soul magnifies you, Father, I pray that we would have something of that experience this morning, Lord, that uh, you would be enlarged in our hearts and our souls and our spirits would rejoice as we study your word together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This young woman by the name of Mary had hidden the word of God in her heart since she was a child. And when she was filled with the Holy Spirit, she was then able to pour forth a song of praise out of the treasure of the scripture that was in her heart. And her song of praise here is, is commonly called the Magnificat, which is Latin, which means to magnify. And it's a brilliantly woven tapestry of scripture that she would have heard and learned from an early age. And every young Israelite knew by heart the principal songs, the, the songs of Hannah, the songs of Deborah and David. And they sang them from an early age on the Hebrew feast days. And it was very much the same way today that we sing hymns or carols at Christmas, Thanksgiving hymns, Easter hymns today. These are the songs that Mary knew from childhood, and they were just as familiar to her and precious to her as Christmas carols are to us today. 
And during that several day journey to Elizabeth's home in the hill country of Judea, it's not unlikely as she traveled along, the newly pregnant Mary meditated on the story of Hannah in the Old Testament, because there's much of Hannah's song and, and Mary's hymn of praise. But it also must be remembered that at this point, when she sang this song, she was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And her hymn of praise became here part of, of Holy Writ. It became part of, of God's Word. And her experience was like that of the prophets of old, where according to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And here we have an example where Mary, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God, and it became part of Holy Scripture. And Mary's mind was full of Scripture, and it was full of sacred phraseology from she had learned both in the synagogue and at home, and the Holy Spirit took what she had and had hidden in her heart and wove it into this hollowed tapestry called the Magnificat. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of Mary's hymn of praise. As you may know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that great book, The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, he paid that, that cost of discipleship because he was executed by the Nazis just weeks before World War II was over. But in a sermon, this faithful servant of God, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said of Mary's song, The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is also the most passionate, the wildest, and one might almost say the most revolutionary Advent hymn that has ever been sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary, as we often see her portrayed in paintings. The Mary who is speaking here is passionate, carried away, enthusiastic. There's none of the sweet, wistful, or even playful tone of many of our Christmas carols today, but instead a hard, strong, relentless hymn about the toppling of the thrones and the humiliation of the lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. This is the sound of the prophetic women of the Old Testament, Deborah, Judith, Miriam, coming to life in the mouth of Mary. Mary, who was seized by the power of the Holy Spirit, who humbly and obediently lets it be done unto her as the Spirit commands her, who lets the Spirit blow where it wills. She speaks by the power of the Spirit about God's coming into this world, about the advent of Jesus Christ. Mary's hymn of praise also reflects her character and her emotional response to God's mighty work in her life. It extends praise to God for his faithfulness to the righteous remnant of his people down through the history and for their future vindication. Her understanding what God is doing now in her life causes her great joy. Her faith rests in God that acts on behalf of the righteous to take care of them. Now there are two parts to Mary's hymn, the Magnificat. Mary begins by giving personal reasons for her magnifying the Lord. Then she moves to the prophetic reasons for making him great. And this is an intriguing mix because today, contemporary Christian music is often criticized for being too personal. 
It's said to be too much about a person's feelings and what they experience and experiential and, and even say it's, it's too me-centered. While traditional hymns are criticized for being theological and outdated. But Mary's hymn is a wonderful mix or blend of both. It's full of scripture and deep theology and the truth of God's word. While at the same time it expresses that personal, heartfelt emotion and experience of the living God. And today we'll be considering just the first part of the hymn. And we'll look at our personal reasons for the great hymn of praise. So ask that you turn once again to Luke chapter 1 verse 46. The 46th verse of Luke chapter 1. Mary begins by giving an unforgettable expression and elevation of her soul. She says in verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Literally it says, My soul makes great the Lord. My soul enlarges the Lord. Now, of course, God cannot be made any bigger than he already is. But he can be enlarged in our lives. He can be enlarged in our spirit and in our soul. And we magnify or enlarge the Lord when we take into our minds, take into our thinking, some new aspect of his greatness. Mary's soul dwelt on the greatness of God in sending his son to save people from their sins and what God was doing for his people. And Mary had never seen God so great as he now showed himself to be to her. And we magnify the Lord the same way when we take into our minds some new aspect or understanding of his greatness. So I was thinking about that. It, it could be meditating on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Remember that? Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Of course, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Think about that. Anything that is, that exists today, only came into being because Jesus Christ brought it in to being. And when we think about that, and when we meditate on it, when we take it into our minds, God enlarges his purposes. He is enlarged, as it were, and he is magnified. And of course, continuing in John chapter 1, this, this holiday season as we come into Thanksgiving and then to Christmas, we take into our thinking the 14th verse of John chapter 1. And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. Think about that for a minute. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is one of the reasons it's so important to meditate on Scripture. To not only hide it in our hearts as we memorize it, but to plumb the depths of God's Word and an understanding of His Word so that God will be enlarged in our souls. Because the fuller our knowledge of the greatness of God, 
the greater our ability to enlarge him. After Mary had heard and responded to the angel's announcement in her visitation with Elizabeth, she began to think bigger and grander thoughts than she'd ever had before. And she not only enlarged the Lord with her mind and with her lips, but she did so with the passion of her whole being, both soul and spirit. Her soul magnified the Lord and her spirit rejoiced. She worshiped in body, the words of her lips, and she worshiped in soul and spirit. It's a powerful way that Mary is saying here, my total self, all that I am, magnifies and praises the Lord. This is significant because when Jesus began his ministry and he was speaking to the, the Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria, and he said to her, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. By worshiping in spirit, Jesus means the inner human spirit, our inner person, worships. God seeks people whose entire human spirits are engaged in worship. You might remember the example of this in another woman named Mary, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And before Jesus was to go into Jerusalem on the, that day, they would sing Hosanna to him, Hosanna in the highest. The night before, Mary of Bethany broke a priceless vial of perfume and she anointed Jesus' head and feet with it. And the disciples of Jesus protested about the cost. Oh, you could have done so much for the poor with, with the cost of that perfume. But Jesus responded to them, She has done a beautiful thing for me. Her entire human spirit was given over to the passionate worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the same way, a hundred years before, or a thousand years before, King David had danced before the Ark of the Covenant, totally absorbed in worship as others protested. And David pledged in the Psalms, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, I will sing praises, even with my soul. God still desires today that we worship him by making him great with our entire soul and spirit. So in Mary's hymn of praise in verses 50 or 48 through 50. She first of all gives personal reasons as to why her soul magnifies the Lord. And this morning we're just going to leave or talk about the personal reasons beginning in verse 48. And uh, next uh, or two weeks from today, then we'll, we'll talk about the prophetic reasons that she does. First, the personal reasons. Mary's humble estate and blessedness. Why does her soul enlarge the Lord? Verse 48. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Mary's song here has a, a direct allusion to the petition of barren Hannah. When, when Hannah was barren and, and she wept bitterly before the Lord and, and she prayed and 
She said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant. And the Greek word translated affliction in the Greek Old Testament is the same word translated here in Mary's song as humble estate. Humble estate. In heart, Mary was like Hannah of old who humbly cast herself on the Lord as the only one who could help. And the Lord looked down on Mary with loving care. He saw her as someone that he could bless without it going to her head, without making her proud. Mary could so bless Mary, or God could so bless Mary because she was humble before the Lord. In Mary's eyes and the eyes of others, she was no one special in the world. She was to become the wife of a village carpenter in a town of Nazareth that, that nobody liked that town. Yet the God of Israel had chosen her as the mother of his incarnate son. So it all begins with Mary herself, who would become a carpenter's wife, a poor working man's wife, an unknown woman who was not highly regarded by others. She was unremarkable and lowly in the eyes of others. But she was regarded by God and chosen to be the mother of the Savior of the world. She was not chosen because of any human merit, nor was she chosen for being as she undoubtedly was. She was deeply devout, but she was not even chosen for her humility or any other virtue. She was, in chosen, she was chosen entirely and uniquely because it was God's gracious will to choose her, to love her, to choose, to make great what is lowly, unremarkable, and considered of little value. Quoting Bonhoeffer again, he says, God is not ashamed of human lowliness, but goes right into the middle of it, chooses someone as instrument, and performs the miracles right there where they are least expected. God draws near to the lowly, loving the lost, the unnoticed, the unremarkable, the excluded, the powerless, and the broken. What people say is lost, God says is found. What people say is condemned, God says is saved. Where people say no, God says yes. Unquote. Because the humiliation Mary's son would experience on the cross, God chose a humble couple, Mary and Joseph, living in humble circumstances. With the coming of God's son, the poor and the downtrodden would have the opportunity to see light and find freedom from sin's bondage. And here again we come face to face with the principle that we see in these first chapter, this first chapter of Luke's, that Christ comes, Christ comes to those who realize their need. He comes to those who cannot save themselves. He comes to the humble. He comes to the disenfranchised. Mary was a nobody from a non-place. Turn over to, while you're in Luke's gospel, turn over to Luke chapter 4. Verse 18, Luke chapter 4, the, the 18th verse. Some 30 years later, from where we are in Luke chapter 1, the Lord Jesus would begin his public ministry. And he'd begin it by reading Isaiah chapter 61 in the synagogue. The presiding rabbi handed him the scroll, Jesus opened it, 
and he began to read. And we pick it up in, in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The eternal truth of this is encompassed in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to who? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Going back to Luke chapter 1, I want to jump a little ahead a little bit in our text because I want you to see a contrast. In verse 47 of Luke chapter 1, or verse 48, Luke, or Mary exclaims in verse 48, For he has regard for the humble estate of his bond slave. Her humble estate. Now the contrast with the proud is down in verse 51. How does God deal with the proud? How does God deal with the arrogant? How does God deal with the self-sufficient? We've already seen how God deals with the humble, those who are broken in spirit. How does he deal with those who are proud? It says in verse 51, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. And what is one of the mighty deeds that God has done with his arm? He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and then the contrast, and has exalted those who are humble. And this is the same way that the Apostle Peter put it. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in the proper time. Mary's humble perspective forms the basis of her gratitude. And Mary is not bragging when she says, For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. All generations. She says, behold, it's an exclamation of surprise. It's a statement of wonder in the heart and the mind of, of, of Mary and the awesomeness of what God is doing in her life. And this is mind-boggling, a mind-boggling revelation to this young teenage woman. Think of that simple young girl in her obscurity having flashed before her the certainty that her name would be repeated and she would be found blessed generation after generation, all generations, she says here. And to this day, the name Mary is the most common woman's name in the Western world. As you know, her name is repeated over and over and over again every Christmas season. She recognized her blessing till the world's end, and she lays the honor at God's feet. And in verses 49 and 50, we see Mary's personal celebration for what God has done. Verse 49. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. 
Here Mary sings of three divine perfections of God. His power, His holiness, His eternal mercy. And so the first perfection of God that Mary proclaims is His power. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Mary had experienced God's power at conception when the power of the Most High overshadowed her. And Mary is thinking here of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The Messiah's name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His name shall be called Mighty God. In the Hebrew, it's El Gabor. El Gabor, which means Mighty Hero God, one who performs heroic, mighty acts. This is Mary's confession of God as the Mighty One. In other words, where what is impossible with men is possible with God. God does the impossible. He makes dry wombs conceive. He raises the dead. He removes hearts of stone and replaces them with living hearts. And this is why we can say with the Apostle Paul, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God. The good news about Jesus Christ has power. When Alfred Nobel invented that powerful substance that blew things up and was very powerful, he picked the word here for in the Greek word dunamis, which means power. It's the power of God. And we get our word dynamite from it. And the Apostle Paul has in mind here the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ carries with it the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God. The all-powerful God is behind it, operating in regenerating a person. It's the unlimited power of God that takes a sinner whose soul has been corrupted, degenerated by sin, and makes that person completely new in Christ Jesus. Gives him a new heart, a new nature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the gospel then becomes a force. And the word dunamis is throwing the emphasis on the force. It is the power in the sense that God is the source of an incredible power, a limitless power that transforms our lives. And notice that Mary says that God has done great things for me. For me. Christianity is a very personal relationship between God and his child. God is not abstract or theoretical, but he's real and he is personal. In your relationship to Jesus Christ, in your salvation experience, can you honestly say, for me? Do you know what the mighty God has done for you personally? Just for you. He sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. All your sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Mary proclaims his power. And then Mary also proclaims God's holiness. She says, holy is his name. Gabriel had told Mary that the child to be born would be called holy. He would be called the son of God because the almighty God had worked in this pure, set apart and sinless way. His name would be recognized as holy, completely set apart from all sin. Holy, gadosh in the Hebrew, ascribes sinlessness to God. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filled the temple with, with glory, and he heard the seraphim going, Holy, 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 or gadosh, 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 an echo chamber of the holiness, the perfect holiness of God. Holy. Mary describes him as being lifted infinitely high above all creation, including man's fallenness and sin. He is uniquely holy, infinitely exalted. He is transcendent. Then Mary praises God for his mercy to her. Not only does Mary exalt God's power and holiness, she also lifts up God's mercy. Verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Someone said God's mercy is his ministry to the miserable. That's really good. His mercy is upon generation after generation. That's a quote from Psalm 103. And here Mary's song begins to transition from the the individual to the, the corporate, from what she herself had experienced to what God has offered to one generation after another throughout the course of history. Like he did with Mary, God has always reached down in mercy to the devout humble in each generation. And in verse 50, we see the qualifications for God's mercy. You may never have thought it this way. God's mercy is available to the reverent or to those that she says here, to those who fear him, to those who fear him. That is to those who in heart and mind are filled with worshipful or devout regard for God. Like Mary, these are the generally God-fearing and pure people. And God reserves special consideration, special mercy for those who fear him. These are those who bow before him in holiness. They marvel at his kindness. These are those who humbly worship him in spirit and in truth. These are those who come before God and say, God, I am broken. I am broken in spirit. I cannot fix it myself. And God extends his grace, his mercy, his love, and his kindness. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for this wonderful example of, of this bondservant of yours named Mary, who has given us the example here, Lord, that any one of us can come to you, God, wherever we are, whatever we are going through, whatever we are experiencing, knowing, Father, that as we come to your throne, which is the throne of grace, the throne of mercy, 
the throne of kindness, Father, that you will look upon the humble estate that we have, Father. And in all of that, our soul will enlarge you, our spirit will rejoice, and we will be recipients of the merciful and kindness that you extend to each one of us, Lord. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.